WAGP.net. This is the Bible Line, a live radio call-in program with Dr. Carl Brogy. Dr. Brogy is the senior pastor of Community Bible Church of Beaufort, South Carolina. And for the next hour, he's available to answer your questions, providing biblical insight and wisdom for everyday Christian living. Our phone lines are open, and if you have a question, you may call 525-1859 locally or outside the immediate area, call toll-free 877-924-7980. Now let's join Dr. Carl Brogy. Be diligent to present yourself approved to God as a workman who does not need to be ashamed, handling accurately the word of truth. We welcome you this hour to the Bible line. If you're a first-time listener, for the next 60 minutes, we'll be taking questions that people have concerning their study of the Holy Scripture or maybe personal issues as it relates to their home, family, ministry, and you'd like biblical counsel. Uh, All you need to do, if we can help, is pick up the phone, call us locally. Again, the number is 525-1859. For our internet listeners, the toll-free number is 877, the call letters of the station, WAGP 980. When you call, you can go on the air live, or if you're more comfortable, you can simply dictate your question. We also receive email questions, each Bible line, and people email us here directly into the studio. And the email address is tbl for the Bible line, tbl at net. So, Rick, let's go ahead and we'll get started. All right. We've already got a live caller standing by. Let's go to them now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You are on the Bible line. All right. I appreciate your time. Thank you. Yes. Thanks for calling. How can we help today? Yes, I have a question, right? I'm, I'm a new um, Christian, probably under a year. Okay. And um, uh, well, I didn't get saved at a particular church, and I've been reading my Bible. And then about four or five months ago, I went to a particular church that I felt God was leading me to. And I've been going faithfully, and I volunteered to help out there, and I started going to small groups and stuff. And But I just don't feel as though I'm growing at that church. And I, and I know the responsibility of spiritual growth falls on me too, but what is the responsibility of spiritual growth for a new Christian with the church? Like, I'm eager to learn. I went out this weekend and did a witness um downtown Savannah, passing out tracts and talking to people about Christ with another brother from the church. And I just, you know, and next week, hopefully I'll, I'll be starting your um, Institute of Biblical Studies on Search of Scriptures, but I just feel as though I'm not growing in that church. And I asked somebody to, one of the elders, if they would be my, um, like, accountability partner or just help me stand accountable, and they sent me an email saying that they were just, they didn't know me well enough. So, I'm just curious of yeah these are these are great questions, and I appreciate you asking them and these are important issues and really part of it <coughs> excuse me comes down to how do i how do I find a healthy church and unfortunately, we're living in a day where there's a lot of churches that may even have the gospel and believe the Bible, but they're not always healthy. and sometimes if we're brand new Christians, uh, we don't always know what to look for. And we don't uh, know where to begin. Uh, so a couple, couple thoughts. Uh, of course, you always start with, with do- doctrine. What does the church believe? You want to make sure that they are, you know, it, it, they're right on line with all the non-negotiable doctrines of Christianity. Those would be things like the doctrine of the Trinity, 
uh, the virgin birth of Christ, uh, the affirmation of his sinless deity, uh, his death on the cross as a substitute that he didn't uh, spiritually rise from the dead, but he actually physically, literally was raised from the dead. That his second coming is not just spiritual in nature, but he will literally, physically, actually, just like he left, as Acts 1 teaches, he will come again to judge the living and the dead. And most of those doctrines are based on a view as to whether we acknowledge the Bible to be the infallible, inerrant Word of God. And this is important because many times today you will meet pastors who will say, well, yes, we believe the Bible to be the inspired Word of God, but they mean different things by that. And if you don't ask these kinds of questions, and you should ask, uh, because if a man is uh, not orthodox in his theology, then he's not a pastor that you want to sit under. But a man, for instance, might say, well, I believe the Bible's inspired, and by that he means like Shakespeare was inspired. Or he may say, well, the Bible is inspired in spiritual issues, but not necessarily historical or even scientific issues. Uh, So then he's saying there's a partial view of inspiration. And many people will say, well, the Bible's inspired, but... You know, it was still written by humans who were moved by God and their human sinful tendencies bled onto the pages of Scripture. So they would say, well, you know, Paul's homophobic or he was a chauvinist and that he didn't want women to be pastors. And, you know, and so they would say, well, there are some things you have to sort through and pick out as to what's true and what's not. So you want to make sure that when a a person says he believes in the Bible to be inspired, he also affirms inerrancy, that the Bible is without error. And even there, you have to be careful because you have some very clever cooperative Baptists uh, who use the term inerrancy because they don't want to lose conservative evangelical Christians. But what they mean by that is the Bible is inerrant in its function, not in every single word. That is, the Bible is infallible and without error in its ability to help you to find Christ, maybe to grow as a Christian, but not in every single word that it says. So you, when, when someone says, I believe the Bible is inspired, you want to hear the word inerrancy, and you want to hear that every single word is inspired. Because if every single word is not inspired, if it's only inspired in spots, then you have to be inspired to spot the spots. And um, and that's why we have all the nonsense that we have going on in our day, where you have people, even under the banner now of evangelical or Bible-believing Christianity, that are giving endorsement to things like homosexual marriage, or that homosexuality is a, is a minority status. Well, it's not a minority status. It's a moral issue. Um, and so these are critical, critical things. Then you want to ask a question, well, did the pastor go to seminary? And I'm not saying that that's absolutely necessary, but I think it's important in a lot of cases. Would you want to uh, have a doctor operate on you who didn't go to medical school? Well, you know, there have been some people who in emergency situations have, you know, taken out someone's appendix and so forth because no one was around. But it would certainly not be my preference. I'd rather have a trained, skilled medical doctor. And there has to be some process of study uh, that takes place. In the first century, that took place through the local church, but there was still nonetheless a rigorous study of preparation that showed a man to be sound in doctrine. And so there's a leading pastor, for instance, in our state with multi-sites, and he went to seminary for one semester and he quit. 
probably because he lacked discipline, I fear. And every time I hear him, I cringe because half of the things he says are just inaccurate. And I'm thinking, no, that's not what the Bible says, or no, that's an error. And I just, I can hardly stand it. But in the day that we live in, so many people do not know their Bibles well enough that they sit under pastors like that, and he has thousands of followers, and they don't know the difference. So ask if the pastor has been to a seminary, and what kind of seminary did he go to? Was it a conservative Bible-believing seminary? Because typically, if a pastor goes to a liberal seminary, he will be liberal in his theology. Uh, And then you look for some healthy dimensions within the church itself. Uh, Is there a commitment to the preaching of the Word of God? And the reason you may not feel like you're growing is, and again, I don't know anything about your church or where you live or anything. It sounds like maybe you live in Savannah, but um, if if your pastor's not teaching from the Word, if you don't need a Bible to follow his sermons, then you're in a weak church. And unfortunately, this has become the norm for our day. It used to be that pastors would open a, a text of scripture because they're commanded by Christ to feed the sheep with the word of God. Thy word is truth. Sanctify them in the truth, Jesus would say. And so the way people are set apart and grown is through the preaching of God's word. And if a pastor neglects that and he just gets up and wings it and tells a lot of story and you don't need your Bible to follow a sermon, then try to find another church. I would say this to you as a brand new Christian, the Institute of Biblical Studies would be great. And out of all the courses that I would encourage you to start with would be the Back to Basics series. And uh, that's one of uh, one of the courses you could take. But when someone comes to Christ, say, at Community Bible Church in Beaufort, they go to the Discovery class, which is our Back to Basics course now available at the... Uh, uh, Institute of Biblical Studies through Search the Scriptures. And it takes about 40 weeks to go through on Sunday mornings here, but it grounds a new believer in the essentials of the faith so that he can become strong. So if you feel like you're drying up, it probably means you are. And uh, and I don't want to quench your enthusiasm and your newfound love for Christ. And so find the best church you can get in and uh, plug away. And and if there are some people, I got a call from someone in the Midwest last week, and they they went through every church in the community. They were willing to drive even 40 miles, and there was just not a sound church there. And it was so sad. And I said, well, find the most biblical one you can get into, unless God's leading you to plant a church with some other families. And he was a new, new Christian and not in a position to do that then find, you know, one that at least has the gospel. Don't don't be a part of some apostate church. And uh, and then try to feed yourself as best you can through the Internet and uh, through websites like searchthescriptures.org or anything else you can use to, to grow in Christ. Uh, I, I really appreciate the spirit of that question, Rick, and that new Christian asking that. And I sense his hunger, and, and I want him to grow. And I know the Lord does, and anything that he can do, to facilitate that in terms of his responsibility will be important. All right, listener. All right. Can I, can I say one more thing? Yes, real quick? sure, please. All right. Um, now, we, we, um, I, the church I go to is a, um, a non denominational, Bible believing, evangelical church. They do um, teach scripture for scripture um, verse by verse. It just seems like it's real impersonal. I have no discipleship type, uh, like, you you should go you should go to the senior pastor and ask him ask him if there is a new Christians is there a new Christians class in the church no, 
No, well, there, no new Christian class. There, there and needs I already to talked be. to them about that, and they said um, that's for where home groups at. When I go to home groups, it, you, you might have the Bible open for like 10 minutes, then you're talking about the world. You're not really, you know what I mean? You're not really digging into the scriptures. That's why I got to read. I read a lot of books, though. I buy a lot of Christian books. Okay. I do a lot of online YouTube studies of um, fundamentalists, you know, not, uh, um, Bible believing inerrancy of the Bible. And I right. buy books all the time, like systematic technology books. And I'm really trying to learn, but I just don't feel as though I'm, I feel like the radio and the books are teaching me more than I'm getting from my church. Well, and again, that, 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 that's sad because, um, you know, that that's not the way it should happen. Let me just encourage you in this way. Go to the Institute of Biblical Studies and do the Back to Basics course. That's going to give you enough to chew on for the next six months. And if you will go through the Back to Basics course and take it seriously, you're, you're going you're gonna to take off. Uh, we have people who drive to church here on Sunday morning 50 and 60 miles. And there's a reason for that because they're so frustrated. And some of them are, you know, married and they've got young children and they have one slice of time to raise their children. And dads want to do it well and they want to grow spiritually. And I said, do whatever you can. It's the Lord's Day all day on Sunday. Do whatever you have to do to make it happen. But definitely take the Back to Basics course. Okay. All right, very good. We've got two calls waiting, right, so let's, let's go, go to the next All one. Right, Thanks good. for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Hey, uh, thank, thank you for taking my call. I just wanted to um, say that I'm not a new Christian by any means, and I'm, you know, I, I appreciate that caller just now. That's so awesome. I just absolutely can relate to the hunger because although I've been a Christian for many years, my hunger is stronger now than ever, and maybe I was a stagnant Christian. I just didn't seek like I should have to grow deeper. So I wasn't doing necessarily the right things early in my, in my Christian walk, but that's changing and my desire is getting so strong for the Word. So I'm learning things and I'm, um, I've been looking online. I'll look like a subject, uh, say, the thousand-year millennium. I did that last night. <clears throat> and it's very you know, interesting, some of the things that pop up, but, I, but I'm not stupid and I know that there's faults teachers out there, and I want to learn, and, and I'll read things, but I, if I have a check in my spirit, if I see something that goes against what I've been taught, because I've heard some pretty good stuff growing up, I've, I've got a little bit of wisdom about what's right, but um, th- there's a guy, I wanted to ask about this guy named Steve Wahlberg, I wanted to know if uh, Pastor Brogy knows who he is, um, I got uh, got to reading some of his stuff on it, and he, boy, he really had a different outlook on the thousand-year millennium. He uh, he doesn't believe there's even a, a seven-year tribulation. Um, he wasn't all that far off as far as um, he had a lot of lot of really good things to say that matched up with all the other stuff I've heard all my life. But when it comes to the, the, the millennium, he thinks it's um, not peaceful at all, and it's uttered this devastation and, and judgment so having so much respect for for you pastor Brogy, because i i have listened to you now for a while on the radio and i really really believe with all my heart that you want us to look, to know the truth and that is so important to me and i respect your opinion so i want i want you to um comment on this if you would please i'm gonna i'm gonna hang up so i can listen well i appreciate that sometimes a um a pastor can be really right on line on a lot of issues, but sometimes when it comes to the subject of end times, 
especially the book of Revelation, they approach it in different ways. Uh, there have basically been, you know, four approaches to the book of Revelation in the history of the church. There's what we would call the allegorical approach to Revelation or a non-literal approach. And it was started by uh, an early school in the second and third century called the Alexandrian, Alexandrian School. But a guy by the name of St. Augustine made it really popular. And interestingly, Augustine, for the most part, uh, interpreted the Bible allegorically. In other words, everything was a symbol. Um, and everything had a, a, a hidden meaning behind it. Uh, the problem with interpreting the Bible that way is you can make it mean just about anything you, you want. And it becomes a very, you know, dangerous approach, uh, to interpreting the word of God. There was another view in terms of understanding revelation. It's what we would call the preterist view. And the preterist view says that from a Latin word that, uh, basically, argues that all of the events in the revelation um, were took place in the early history of the church uh, that there's symbols all the way through revelation that uh, picture events that took place in the first century most preterists would argue it all happened before uh, 70 AD again I, I think there's a huge problem and a huge fault with that uh, interpretation. Certainly there are symbols in Revelation. For instance, uh, um, I, I turned here to Revelation in the first chapter. Uh, John is writing. He says, I turned to see the voice that was speaking to me. And having turned, I saw seven golden lampstands. And then a couple verses later, he will say in his right hand, he held seven stars. So he's He's using some symbolic language there, but very often the symbols that are used in Revelation are in turn uh, interpreted in Revelation. So he will tell us just a few verses after that. Uh, the Lord Jesus is speaking. He says the seven stars are the angels of the seven churches and the seven lampstands are the seven churches. So he interprets the symbol for us. And that's not unusual in Revelation. In fact, many of the symbols in Revelation, if they're not interpreted within Revelation itself, they're interpreted in other portions of the Bible. Usually in most seminary studies, for instance, whenever you study Revelation, you will study the book of Daniel with it. Daniel, Revelation are kind of a pair of sorts because much of uh, the Revelation is understood by a solid understanding of the Old Testament prophet Daniel. Um, with that said, the preterist view is very weak. Um, certainly the second and third chapters of the Revelation describe what took place in the first century. But when you come to chapter four, all the way through the end of the book, it's futuristic. And in fact, we have kind of a divine outline in some books of the Bible that God has given. And the Revelation is certainly one like it. Uh, Acts 1.8, go therefore, you know, he says, wait until uh, you're filled with the Holy Spirit from on high. And then he says, you'll be my witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and even to the end of the earth. So the Holy Spirit sometimes gives us a divine outline and he does in Acts 1. And so Acts 1 through 7 is their witness in Jerusalem. Uh, Acts 8 through 12 in Judea and Samaria. And then to the remotest part of the earth, 13 through the end of the book. Well, in Revelation 1.19, right therefore, the things which you have seen... That's Revelation 1. The things that are, that's Revelation 2 and 3. And the things that shall take place after these things, that's Revelation 4 through 22. 
So the preterist view to say that this has already been fulfilled, they really have to, it's almost an allegorical approach, but not quite, but it is almost an allegorical approach uh, to the revelation, and it just doesn't use the right means of interpretation. How do I know it's the wrong means of interpretation? Well, because of the model that God gave us in the New Testament when interacting with the Scripture. So when you see the Lord Jesus interact with the Old Testament or the apostles interact with the Old Testament, they take a literal historical approach to the Scripture. So there's the allegorical view that everything's a symbol. Um, Again, you can come up with as many interpretations as you can think of. There's the preterist view that says it was all fulfilled in the early church. Huge problems with that. I mean, you have to make huge stretches in your imagination to say, well, how how was it that, you know, the waters of the world were turned to blood in the first century? Well, you know, it means this. And again, it's wide open. And so when you read someone who takes a preterist view of Revelation, you'll get as many interpretations as you'll find commentaries. There is a historical approach, which basically is a combination of the allegorical and preterist view um, they do have a futuristic aspect, though, to uh, the Revelation, and they would say the book of Revelation is a symbolic picture of all of church history. Um, and again, as many commentaries as you will read, you will find interpretations in different people at different times in church history who have taken this approach to the Revelation, have seen things for their generation and interpreted in light of the events around them, and the next generation does it differently. I believe the correct approach is what we would call the futuristic approach, where it takes chapters 4 through 22 as yet future. And I believe that the Lord Jesus understood uh, and really gave us this view in Matthew 24 and 25 and what we call the Olivet Discourse, because it's given there on the Mount of Olives, that sermon. And again, when you think about prophecy uh, as it relates to the first coming of Christ, every single prophecy was literally fulfilled. And for us to think that God will fulfill the prophecies for the second coming in a different way, we have no precedent for taking that kind of uh, freedom with the Scripture. So historically, I think the wisest, most sound approach to the Word of God is what we would call a literal, historical, grammatical interpretation of Scripture. So we recognize there are figures of speech in the Bible, uh, but we also recognize that unless something is specifically a figure of speech— Uh, or a metaphor or whatever, that we are simply to take it literally. Uh, I don't know what this man was teaching on the millennium, but the millennium is literally a thousand years long. Um, The millennium does have a dark side to it because it mimics a biblical day uh, with sundown, uh, beginning a new day. And so the Jewish Sabbath always begins on sundown on Friday and it ends on sundown Uh, on Saturday evening. And so I believe we're in the shadows now as things are getting darker. And at some point, the rapture is going to take place and things are going to get dark as night. 
it's going to be the worst time in human history. That's how the prophet Daniel described it, and that's how uh, Jesus described it in Matthew 24, and that's how he describes it in his letter to the churches. And so he speaks of a time of tribulation that will encompass the entire world. That's never happened in all of human history, in all of church history, but Jesus spoke of such a time. And it is pictured for us in Revelation 4 through 22. So things are going to get very dark during the time of the Great Tribulation, which is a literal seven-year event. And its uh, time frame is not just from the book of Revelation. It's also found in the Old Testament and the prophet Daniel. And the fact that it is a horrible time is found by other prophets, um, like Jeremiah, where he calls it the time of Jacob's trouble. At the second coming, things are going to be wonderful and glorious for a thousand years. But at the end of the millennium, when the devil who'd been tied up for a thousand years and chained will be loosed, he will tempt the nations of the world and it will get dark again. So it mimics a biblical day. But some of the things that this person is saying, if you are representing him well, and I, I and so I'm not going to use his name because uh, I know many times people will say, well, he says this and they really misunderstood him. Um, but if he's saying there's no tribulation, uh, then he, he's missed the, the, the teaching, the clear teaching of Scripture. Anyway, that's a lot we could go through. But if someone really wants to study this subject, we did a course in the Institute of Biblical Studies called Eschatology. Eschatos is the Greek word for last things. And so um, eschatology is a study of the last times. And I did it over 52 weeks. I went through all the different positions that people held, premillennialism, amillennialism, postmillennialism, pre-trib, mid-trib, post-trib rapture, all the things that flavor people's thinking and interpretation. And we went through great lengths and in great depth. And if someone really wants to study that, that would be a good course I would in encourage you, but it's not for the faint of heart. It's taught on a master's level and really for the serious student of the Bible. Let's go to the next question. All right. And a reminder to all our listeners, if uh, you missed anything about this question or the answer, you can always visit us at wagp.net or search the scriptures.org and listen to uh, past uh, messages or past uh, Bible line programs. We do have a caller. David is on line three. Let's go to him now. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning, Pastor Brogy and Rick. How are you guys? Doing well, thank you. Good. Interesting question and answer. Um, I'm, I'm going to kind of got really about go down a rabbit trail here because I've been reading through the Old Testament and I'm on numbers currently, and I'm just going through everything about all of the sacrifices and the different kinds of sacrifices and how many animals they had to sacrifice. And it was obviously important, otherwise God wouldn't have put it in His Bible. And I know that Jesus ended all of the sacrifice once and for all when he came. But what I'm curious about is, after you get through Numbers and Leviticus and Deuteronomy, the Bible doesn't really speak as much about all of the different sacrifices. And I know that in that 400-year period when God was silent, unless I'm incorrect, Pastor Brogy, is this not when the Jews really turned away from God and he sent them into exile? Is, is Is there a reason... Do you think, is there a correlation between them not sacrificing the way God commanded in in the earlier books of the Bible and them being exiled and, and all of the things that happened to them up to the coming of Christ? Well, it's a good question, so let me just kind of briefly comment on it. 
Let me first say that there was a time when, whenever you read a book of the Old Testament, you always want to ask, at what point in Israel's history is this book being written? Because if you can understand the historical context, at what time in Israel's history the book is being written, it will really make it come alive for you. So the Torah, or the law, or the Pentateuch, Penta meaning five, the first five books of the Bible, were written by Moses during the 40 years of wandering out in the desert. In Numbers, of course, is a a book where uh, God sets up the tabernacle. It's called Numbers in the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Bible. It's called Bemadar in the the Hebrew Bible, which means wanderings, but they're wandering or means wilderness. And they're in they're, they're they're in the wilderness for, for 40 years. And, and God is using that time to prepare Israel among other things as to how they should worship and approach him. And so he sets up the tabernacle, which later uh, is turned into a more permanent structure that was called the temple. Uh, there was a time when, Uh, They wanted a king, and God had predicted that they would have a king uh, in the book of Deuteronomy. And so God gave some outlines and some guidelines for a king. Uh, But the thing that was most disheartening to the Lord is they looked more to a king than they looked to the Lord God. And so the first three kings, probably the three most famous kings in Israel's history, Saul, David, and Solomon, the, the 12 tribes were united under one king. After that, the kingdom split when Solomon's son comes to the throne, and there's 10 northern tribes called Israel. And this is a little confusing if you don't read it carefully, because prior to that, all 12 tribes are called Israel. But after that, you will see the 10 northern tribes principally called Israel, and the two southern tribes principally called Judah, and the kingdom is divided. And there is a time during that period when they are not worshiping God properly, uh, there are people who are worshiping God properly, but many who are not, and they engage in idolatry. And so God sends different prophets who will come, some who will preach to the northern kingdom, some who will preach to the southern kingdom. So when you read the prophets, the major prophets, based on the amount of material they wrote, and the minor prophets, no less inspired, no less important their message, but we have called them that since the 4th century A.D., based on the amount of material they wrote, much smaller. Um, each of those men are either preaching uh, before the exile, during the exile, or after the exile. And so the 10 northern tribes are carried away by the Assyrians because of their idolatry. More time goes by, and the two southern tribes are carried away by the Babylonians who have overthrown the Assyrians by this time, and they carry them away for the same reason. They eventually come back into the land, and you'll and they rebuild the temple. So during the time of Christ and during the 400-year reign of Christ, they are sacrificing in the temple as God prescribed. Uh, there, they, they didn't cease the sacrifice. The sacrificial system didn't cease until 70 AD when Titus, as Jesus had predicted, came down and destroyed the temple. And they've never had a temple since then in which to perform the sacrifices. There's going to be a coming temple. It will be built by the midpoint of the Great Tribulation because we know the Antichrist will go in and defile it. Um, But they were sacrificing, you know, all during that 400-year period. The problem was is that they had turned things that were picturing the work of Messiah or the New Testament word Christ, 
and they <laughs> turned them into a basis of acceptance before God. So they took the sacrifices of the Old Testament and they distorted their meaning. And it became a works righteousness rather than a symbol of what God was going to do in the future through the work of his son. And so when Messiah finally comes on the scene, many of the Jewish people had become self-righteous, didn't see the need for a savior. And they thought through their religious activity and their commitment and their deeds, much like many people think today, that they could basically earn their way to heaven. Um, And that's the same problem we have in this day with many Jewish people as true of most Gentiles as well. Anyway, good question. Let's go to the next one, Rick. All right, 525-1859, toll-free, 877-924-7980, or email us at tbl at net. I know we were calling a listener back who had been... Let's take an email question, and oh, uh, he's there. we got him there right, now, we'll so take thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Hi. Hi. Thanks for calling. How can we help you? Um, I have a question, and this is the question. Um, why was Eve deceived by the, the devil when the earth was perfect? Well, when God created Adam and Eve, he created Adam and Eve with a free will to have truly to be free, to have a choice, to have a free will presupposes it means that you have to have a choice. And so God gave Adam and Eve a choice from any tree of the garden you may eat. And I suppose there were thousands of trees that they could have eaten from and enjoyed. But God, God said from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for in the day you eat from it, you will surely die. So there was the choice. And so Satan, who had already rebelled against God, he was once a holy angel called the shining one, called Lucifer. And then he rebels against God and he's given many titles and many names. His most famous name is the devil or Satan. And he comes into the garden and he tempts Adam and Eve. Adam and Eve did not have to disobey God. Uh, They could have chosen to follow the Lord, and had they followed the Lord and eaten from the tree of life, then they would have been forever sealed in a righteous state, and everyone who would have come from their loins would have been in that state. But as it is, everyone who would ever be born was in essence in the body of Adam, and so when he sinned, we all sinned with him, and so that's why we were all born as sinners. Anyway, so um, God gave them a choice, and it was a very real choice, and they chose to rebel against God. Appreciate that, young caller. Let's go to the next question. All right, we've got another live caller. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. Good morning, y'all. Carl, I wanted to ask, how do you answer someone who asks how a lifetime of sin can justify an eternity of punishment? And I realize that part of that answer, or maybe the answer, is the, the analogy between the potter and the clay. But I wonder if we have anything else that addresses, uh, you know, the degree of punishment as opposed to the degree of sin. Thanks. Well, it's a great question, and um, it, it's a question that really ha- is a multifaceted answer. Uh, sometimes people, when they think of God sending someone to hell, they think, well, he must have been a really bad dude for God to have sent him to hell. And this guy who goes to heaven must have been, you know, super good. Obviously, I know the caller knows otherwise, but that's the way the average person on the street 
has formulated his theology. But in, in God's economy, it's not the amount of sin that condemns us. It's the fact of sin. Uh, there's a very deadly poison that if you get a drop on your tongue, as soon as it's absorbed into your bloodstream, your heart will stop within a minute. Uh, you can take a drop or you can drink a bottle. It's going to kill you no matter what. And that's kind of the way sin is. James says, for whoever keeps the whole law and yet stumbles in one point, he has become guilty of all. So it's the amount, not the amount of sin, it's the fact of sin that condemns us. And again, this is something a lot of the Jewish people didn't see in their day because overall they thought they were pretty righteous. And comparatively speaking to many of the Gentile idolaters of the day, they really were from a human perspective. And so to those highly moral people, Jesus said, it's not those who are well that need a physician, but those who are sick. I didn't come to save the righteous, quote unquote, but I came to call sinners to repentance or to a change of mind. They had to repent. They had to change their mind and see themselves the way God saw them as falling short of the glory of God. And that's why he could say the prostitutes and the tax collectors in the parable of the two sons. Uh, He said, in essence, they stand a better chance of getting into the kingdom than you do because the tax collector and the prostitute didn't need to be convinced that they were sinful and that they were way short of God's standard of righteousness and that unless God somehow could rescue them, they didn't stand a chance. Where the good moral guy, again, next to the prostitute thought, "I'm, I'm pretty good. I've never done those things. So God must certainly accept me. Well, God in his wisdom determines the penalty for the wages of sin is death. And you're right. The death that God's speaking of is not just physical in nature, but spiritual, what the scripture calls the second death, which is for eternity in the lake of fire. But no one can really even say that that is unfair in respect to the fact that God who set the penalty said, I will pay the penalty. And so the eternal penalty for sin was paid on Golgotha. Christ is an infinite person could accomplish in a finite period of time, the hours he was on the cross, what you and I as finite people would take an eternity to do. And so when he dies on the cross, he dies not just physically, but he dies spiritually. He's forsaken of God. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. My God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? In the spiritual separation, which he had never known throughout all of eternity as a member of the Godhead, became very real. And it was as if he was totally and forever abandoned by the Father in the Spirit. And he did that as a complete payment for our sin. And of course, that's the thing that he recoiled about when he thought about the cross. It was not the physical persecution and the torment of the cross, as bad as that was, but it was the fact that he was going to become sin for us. The sinless, eternal, holy God was going to take upon himself the sins of all time. And so once and for all time, He died for our sin. So God is righteous and no one can say he's unrighteous because as a righteous judge and Jesus said of of the father, there is no unrighteousness in him. Uh, Moses will write, will not the God of the earth do justice? And the answer is yes. And so if God is perfectly just and he deems that sin deserves 
an eternal punishment. Like you say, quoting from the book of Romans, how can the clay say to the potter otherwise? We, we can't. God is infinitely wise, but he's also infinitely, not only just, he's infinitely gracious and that the very penalty he set has been paid for. So if someone has trouble with that, you can just remind them, but an infinite eternal penalty has been paid for through a substitute. And if you go to hell, it won't be God's fault because he provided a way of escape. It will be your fault because you chose to reject his way of escape through the cross of Christ and the full and eternal payment he made there. Anyway, that's a great question. Um, it's a really good question, and I know who it was who called, and her brother and I had that same discussion 20 years ago. He asked me the exact same question because a businessman that he was trying to win for Christ had brought that same issue up to him, and I can still remember our conversation to this day. Let's go to the next question. All right, another caller are standing by. Thanks for holding. Good morning. You're on the Bible line. I guess they gave up on us. All right, let's go to an email and see if we can knock off a few. Many questions have come in. All right, this uh, actually came in last week. Um, This listener says, does God give more weight to corporate prayer, i.e. an entire congregation praying for the same thing, uh, as opposed to an individual? And if so, do you think congregations should have an entire night devoted to nothing but prayer? Well, it's a good question, and uh, certainly the Bible teaches corporate prayer, even in what we traditionally refer to as the Lord's Prayer. Uh, the Scripture says, in response to the disciples' question, uh, Lord, teach us to pray. He said, when you pray, pray like this, our Father who art in heaven. Not my Father, but our Father. And so the Lord assumed that there would be corporate prayer. And we see in Scripture not only individuals praying, but we see peoples praying, And certainly there are times when the church, the body of Christ, cry out corporately. and We need to pray corporately. We do every Wednesday night at the end of our service, and we have a time of corporate prayer. And um, people who want to pray for the needs of the church uh, come on Wednesday nights, and at the end of our service, we have a season of prayer together. And then once a month on Wednesday nights, uh, we pray in small groups, and In either case, uh, there is something to be said for corporate prayer because the Bible teaches it, and you see it modeled in the Scriptures. So in Acts 13, you have the whole church praying in Acts 4 and Acts 2. Um, And so there's an assumption that corporate prayer will take place. And sometimes, too, God does respond to corporate prayer, especially when there is a national issue that is involved or a corporate issue that is involved. And so when the nation of Israel is in sin and the nation seeks God in sackcloth and ashes, God responds. Even unbelievers in Nineveh, when they seek the Lord God in sackcloth and ashes, an unbelieving world, God responded and he held back his wrath and the greatest revival ever in the history of the world took place in a place called Nineveh. So God can respond, but many times... He will respond to the prayer of a single individual. And so God speaks in Luke 18 of the power of a single individual pleading with God at the throne of God. Uh, You have people like Elijah, a single individual who moves the whole nation because of his effectual, fervent, earnest prayer. So we don't necessarily, sometimes people think, well, if I get a bunch of people to pray for this, this is going to make a difference. Well, it might. But it's not necessarily true. 
uh, that I need to have 10,000 people. Well, listen, 10,000 people, every prayer chant I could contact, the nation is praying for it. Sometimes it only takes one. Now, that's not to say that you shouldn't ask people to pray for you and with you. You should, as the Lord burdens you with that. And that's not to say that there shouldn't be, uh, if you if your pastor feels like they want to have a night of prayer, great. If they want to do that, fantastic. Do it. Uh, do what God leads you to do. Uh, don't impose that same standard on someone else. Well, you're more spiritual if once a week you have an all night of prayer. Well, okay, great if you do. But, you know, don't impose that standard on, on everyone else. So I hope that helps. Uh, you might want to. That's just a real brief answer. But again, in our Back to Basic series, we have a lesson on prayer, what the Bible really says about prayer. And it's quite in-depth. And I just answered you in two minutes, but uh, we take three weeks to go through that handout in our discovery class on Sunday mornings. Let's go to the next question. All right. Our next caller says that she serves in a ministry at her church, but recently uh, she has felt a prompting to leave this ministry and stop applying her talents there. How do we know it's God's prompting, not just ours? Well, um, certainly God wants you to be a member of a Bible-believing, Christ-centered church. And sometimes a church will compromise itself, and there are people who know the Scriptures well, and they've gone through the process where they've approached the leadership and said, hey, you know, what we're doing is just not right, and and we need to shore up here, and this is what the Word of God says, and no one really wants to hear them. Well, you went through the proper steps, and maybe at that point it is there is a time to, to leave. Um, so again, that's, um, you have to weigh that you have to have good reason. Uh, but listen, sometimes, you know, we'll accept the fact that God calls a person to a church, but we won't always accept the fact that call God calls a person away from a church. But many times people leave a church for the wrong reasons. Uh, they're not getting along with someone. In fact, I dare say that many churches that have been planted in this country, we're not planted out of a passion for church growth and for winning the loss, but a congregation that split because they couldn't get along with each other. And not even over issues that were of great theological significance, but just a carnality that had entered into the church that had created division. And that's unfortunate when that happens, but very often that's why someone wants to leave. They're upset with someone or someone wronged them. Well, so what? Uh, Join the club. We've all been wrong. Someone slandered them. So what? Join the club. That's part of being a Christian. Uh, There are going to be people sometimes even in the body of Christ that mistreat you. That's no reason to leave a church. Uh, And so very oftentimes a mark of maturity is people who will persevere. And uh, and, and sometimes, too, they'll, they'll see the pastor make a decision that they don't agree with. And it's not a moral issue. And very often pastors have to make decisions that the people do not know what's behind that decision. And for him to share what was behind that decision would be to break a trust, a counseling trust, or to uh, bring unnecessary embarrassment to a person who has honestly and biblically dealt with their sin. And uh, people say, well, you know, why why'd you, why'd you make him step down as deacon? Or why'd you do this? You know, and, and they have no idea what is really going on behind the scenes. And they don't 
trust their pastor, though he's a man of God and a man of integrity, and they end up attacking him or dumping on him. And that's really sad, but that happens every day in America. There's a bit of a follow-up to that. What about if they are serving in a ministry within a church, but now feel they need to stay within this church, but serve in a different capacity, in a different ministry? How do we know when to leave one ministry and go to another ministry to serve within the same church? Well, sometimes, you know, you can Again, go to your pastor or those who are in leadership over you. Sometimes there are ministries within the church and people, uh, let's say there's an adult Bible fellowship ministry in a local assembly and and there's a leader who gives uh, oversight of that and he has, you know, 10 or 20 or five or whatever it may be. uh, Adult Bible fellowship or Sunday school teachers, whatever your church may want to call them. And all of a sudden, somebody's, oh, you know, I, I don't feel led to do this anymore. Well, well, why not? Um, and you, you want to approach that carefully. And are you just going to get up and leave? And I see this all the time. People just get up and leave and they, oh, you know, I don't feel led to do this anymore. And they don't even give the leadership a chance to find a replacement or they haven't sought to find a replacement. And they leave some people, many times newer or younger Christians, high and dry. And the leadership of a church is scrambling just because the person makes a selfish decision. And when I see that happen, I say, look, the next time they want to come and teach, you better think twice because we don't need to see that happen again. There is a sacred stewardship of spiritual gifts, and the Bible warns us in 1 Peter 4.10 that as each one has received a special gift employed in serving one another as good stewards of the manifold grace of God. Stewardship in the Bible means accountability, and someday you will give an account for how you used your spiritual gifts. Now, it is true that there are sometimes people who are in a position in the church where they're really not gifted in that area. But let's just say for the sake of argument, someone has the gift of teaching. And they, I mean, that's their spiritual gift that God has given them. Then throughout their Christian lifetime, assuming they've matured enough where they've met the qualifications of being sound in doctrine, they should use their gift of teaching throughout their whole life. And they don't ever quit. Now, that's not to say there couldn't be a time when maybe they catch their breath for a month or two. Um, But their whole life, they should use that gift of teaching. Maybe the area will change and uh, your burden for, you know, youth grows to the point where you approach your pastors. You know, I've been teaching, you know, kids in the fifth grade and I'd really like to be able to teach high school and I've grown a lot and you know, I, I think I have the ability to relate. Would you consider me for that? And again, God works through leadership. And so you obey your leaders and submit to them. If your pastor says, no, I, I don't think then you willfully submit and you trust his leadership and you pray for him. The king's heart is in the hand of the Lord. He turns it in whatever direction he wishes, like a channel of, of water. And so you pray for your pastor and you trust that God works through the chain of command as the New Testament teaches. So a man plans his ways, but God can indeed direct our steps. Let's go to the next question. All right. Uh, our next caller would like you to please explain Jeremiah three fourteen. What does it mean when the Lord says he's married to the backslider? Well, God's commitment is unrelentless in his love and his his care for his people. Return, O faithless sons, declares the Lord, for I am a master to you, and I will take you from a city and two from a family, and I will bring you to Zion. And on it goes from there. But God's commitment, he's inviting the people of Israel in Jeremiah chapter 3 to repentance. 
and even people who have turned away from the Lord, who have backslidden from the Lord, that doesn't mean that God has abandoned them. They may have, in one sense, for a moment of time, seemingly abandoned the Lord by their sin, but God doesn't abandon them. And so he loves his people with an everlasting love. And in that sense, indeed, he's married to them. And so interestingly, the picture of marriage is a, is a, a, a metaphor, a Hebraism of sorts that God uses to describe his relationship with the people of Israel, that they are his bride and he has married them and he's committed to them. And just like marriage is a, a covenant that is not to be broken Uh, And so God commits himself to the people of Israel. In the New Testament, the church takes on that metaphor. Uh, God describes the bride of Christ in in the same same language. Anyway, good question. Let's go to the next one. All right, 525-1859, toll-free, 877-924-7980, or dictate your question, as this person has. They'd like to know what message Pastor Carl has on once saved, always saved. A caller wants to be able to share your message with someone uh, who believes they can lose their salvation. That's lesson one in the Back to Basics series, which, again, we offer on Sunday morning. It's entitled on Sunday morning, The Discovery Class. And I say it's about a 40, 45-week course, and it's so structured so a person could begin any week they want. They might walk in on lesson 10, uh, but once they came back to lesson 10, they knew they had gone through the entire process. Um, and so if they call Search the Scriptures, the toll-free number is 877-STS for Search the Scriptures, 7478. They can order the Back to Basics series uh, on a CD. It's also on DVD. And there's handouts that go with that. Or you can now go to the uh, Search the Scriptures phone app that's available on Android and Apple phones. And all of those messages can be downloaded and you can listen to them on your computer or in your phone. And you want to listen to the first back in the basic series dealing with the doctrine of eternal security and assurance of salvation. And those are two different things. Because there are some Christians who teach, well, you can be assured of your salvation, but you're not necessarily eternally secure. So you can say, well, yes, I know I'm saved today on the basis of what Jesus did on the cross for me. But that doesn't mean I know that I might not renounce Christ next year or next week or 10 years from now. So I don't know I'm eternally secure. Well, the New Testament teaches not only the doctrine of assurance, but the doctrine of eternal security, that once we are saved, we are truly saved. And so in that handout, I go through the basis of our salvation, the promises that are related to it in terms of eternal security, and the changes that true, genuine salvation brings. And I deal with the subject of pseudo-salvation. People who say they're saved say they're 100%, but they'll be a part of that vast multitude of people who know all the right answers, but Jesus in the end will say to them, I never knew you, not I once knew you, but I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice iniquity. We're out of time for this Bible line. Still have a lot of dictated questions that have come through, but there's always another week. And if God will give us the strength and the grace, we will come back. As Rick said, you can hear the Bible line every week online. It's posted a short time after it's over. The questions that we answered for that day are listed, and you can click on your question if you couldn't listen to it live, but you sent it in through the email and get your answer. 
Hope you have a great day as you walk with Jesus Christ. Thank you.